Holy Father, what a great thing you have asked of us, that we should live and that we should worship by faith and not by sight. If only we could catch a glimpse of you in your glory, the cherubim and the seraphim surrounding your throne, the hosts of the dead in Christ singing your praises, how easily our hearts would be lifted up out of this world and into the sanctuary of the Most High. And with what fear and with what joy and love we would sing your praise and with what anticipation we would hear your word and come to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we cannot see. But Lord, it is ours to ask you this morning that you grant us at least that faith or that sight that faith can give, that sense that faith can impart of your presence, your glory, the wonder of your works, and especially the joy of that salvation which is ours through Jesus Christ our Lord. Give us yourself, O God, and by that means animate our praise and work in us faith and hope and love. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, we begin our worship this morning with one of the most significant hymns in the, the Protestant Reformed tradition of worship coming from the Reformation. It's our hymn number one. It is a metrical version of the 100th Psalm, one of the great psalms of praise uh, in the book of Psalms. And you'll notice in the bottom right-hand corner that um, the music for this metrical version of the 100th Psalm was um, composed by Louis Bourgeois, who was John Calvin's musical collaborator during the Reformation in Geneva. Many famous hymn and psalm tunes uh, come to us from the pen of Louis Bourgeois. Uh, the text is an old uh, text, the stately cadences of Shakespearean English, as you, see, as you will see there. And uh, this is one of those hymns that we sing in part because so many generations of believers have sung it before us. Psalm 100, hymn number one, let us worship God.
seated and on to prayer and the confession of our sins, humbling ourselves before the Lord that he might lift us up. And now God's people together from their hearts. Most merciful God, whose eyes are too pure to behold iniquity, but who has promised forgiveness to all who confess and forsake their sins through Jesus Christ, we come before you in a humble sense of our own unworthiness, acknowledging our many transgressions of your righteous laws. We have done those things which we ought not to have done, and we have not done those things which we ought to have done. But, O gracious Father, who delights to show mercy, look upon us with your mercy and forgive us all your sins. Make us to feel deeply the great evil of them and work in us a true penitence that we may always obtain forgiveness at your hand. For you are ever ready to receive humble and penitent sinners for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our only Savior and Redeemer. Amen. We know almost uh, no one in the pages of God's Word as well as we know David, the King of Israel. We have so much material about his life and uh, the history, his own personal history of it. And uh, so it is not a surprise to us that uh, we know something about his sins and we know something about the forgiveness of those sins. He wrote about them himself in one of the Psalms that reflects on his great sins committed against uh, Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, and then the forgiveness that God extended to him when he confessed his sins to him. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sins. The reason that's in the Bible is because we learn from David's example to do the same thing. And we learn from David's example what will happen for us when we confess our sins. Our sins, likewise, will be forgiven. All of them. And completely. Let's stand to our feet and confess our faith in the one through whom that, conf- that forgiveness comes, the Lord Jesus Christ, 535. Set the Lord before you and sing to him.
Be seated, please. Continue your worship now with your tithes and offerings. We have not yet praised our God this morning by his triune name. Let's stand and sing this ancient doxology.
morning we come to the last paragraph of the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verses 29 to 33. These last verses form an inclusio with the opening verses of the book where Joshua is mentioned by name several times and here again in the account of his death and burial. We've made a point of saying many times that this history by the express teaching of other parts of the Word of God bristles with lessons for our life today. We're taught that the history recorded in Joshua demonstrates the pattern of human life and particularly the life of faith. Joshua is in the terminology of biblical hermeneutics or interpretation typological. It is paradigmatic and so it proves to be to the very end. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnat Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. In other words, Joshua was buried on his own property, identified earlier in chapter 19, verse 50. Moses had died outside of the land. You remember, the Lord had buried him and no one knew where his grave was to be found. But the fact that Joshua is buried in the land uh, is significant. It indicates in a powerful way that Israel is now settled in the land and that the land is theirs. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. The story of Israel's possession of the promised land in a way is now complete. Israel fulfilled a promise made to Joseph centuries before, a promise we read in Genesis chapter 50, verses 25 and 26. Believing in the Lord's promise, believing that Israel would someday inherit Canaan as their own land, Joshua wanted to be buried in the promised land, and now at last he was. I'm not sure what the significance of this is, if it is significant, but both Joshua and Joseph lived to 110 years of age. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. So Eleazar, the high priest, was likewise buried on his family inheritance. <coughs> Our Father, this is a passage we are likely to pass over with not a great deal of thought. And yet, our Father, this too is God-breathed Scripture. This too is profitable for our instruction, our correction, our training in righteousness. Teach us from it, Holy Father. Your servants are listening. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, it's altogether easy for us to miss the obvious reading through these final verses of the book. In fact, 
Only one of the seven or so commentaries that I consulted in preparing these sermons on Joshua took any notice of the obvious point. Two of them did not even comment on the last five verses of the book. But these final verses are about the burial of the dead. Three times we read, they buried him. It's certainly worth pointing out the significance of where they were buried, but the fact that they were buried is important in its own right. Here, in fact, a point is made of its importance. If you remember the account in Genesis, it was a significant step toward eventual settlement in the promised land, a true act of faith in the promise of God that led Jacob to purchase a burial plot at Shechem. It was for the family a toehold in the promised land. And now all Israel is there. They're burying her dead. Burial signifies possession. Remember, in the typology of Scripture, Canaan is heaven. Burial is a toehold in heaven. Now, you've heard me on this subject before, or many of you have, but I make no apologies for taking the opportunity provided by this text to emphasize the importance of the practice of burial, whether underground or in tombs, precisely because this practice is, for the first time in the history of the Christian church, in decline, and nobody is talking about the change, still less speaking against it. Christians in large numbers are growing comfortable with the practice of cremation, and I don't want you ever to grow comfortable with the practice of cremation. It is an anti-Christian act in profound ways. Burial is an act of faith. Cremation is an act of unbelief. It's that simple. Burial is a greeting of the better country from afar. Cremation is an act of utter indifference to the possibility of there being another country and a future life. It's that simple. Jacob buried his family at Shechem as an act of faith in the promised land. Joseph asked for his bones to be carried to Canaan and buried there as an act of faith in the promised land. These men, Joshua and Eleazar, so we read in Hebrews chapter 11, were buried in Canaan as an act of faith that they would eventually awake in the promised land. These examples are here so as to be taken, up, taken to heart by Christians, and Christians today especially, because for the first time in the history of the people of God in the world, the age-old custom of Christian burial is under direct attack. Another practice is replacing that of Jacob and Joseph and Joshua and Eleazar and everybody else in the Word of God. Cremation is now being practiced on a scale unprecedented in Christian history. As I said, it's part of our faith and a practice of our faith that nobody is thinking about, or at least is not thinking biblically or theologically about, 
at the very time the practice is being abandoned. Cremation as a means of disposing of a human body is rapidly becoming the norm on the west coast of the United States. Upwards of 50% of the dead are now cremated every year on the west coast. And that number continues to rise year by year, and there's nothing to suggest it won't continue to rise for the years to come. Those are the facts. And they wouldn't disturb me over much, except for the fact that cremation is coming to be accepted among Christians as a proper, even in some cases, as a preferred method of treating their own dead. What pagans do with their dead is none of our business. What Christians do with our dead is absolutely our business. We're told that it is cheaper, as it is, and that it is not right to burden the bereaved with a large bill for burial. We've been taught to worry that land for new cemeteries is simply not going to be available to us any longer, that existing cemeteries are filling up, and that therefore we must find a different way of dealing with our dead. Some even like the idea. I've heard Christians liking the idea of scattering Uncle Henry over his favorite fishing hole or Aunt Mary over the rose garden she loved so much. I hope none of you swallow that hogwash. We're Christians. The Bible speaks to this issue clearly and emphatically and repeatedly in a way the Christian church has had no difficulty understanding for thousands of years. It's not Christian thinking that lies behind the growing popularity of cremation. It is a resurgent paganism, pure and simple. Now, having said that and made that point so strongly, I need to say something else, and I beg you to listen to me carefully. I do not blame individual Christians who have in the past made the decision to cremate a loved one. My brother-in-law was cremated. I have, I believe, thankfully talked my sister out of doing the same for herself when she comes to die, but I didn't blame her. She'd never thought seriously about the practice. No one had ever told her to think again, or even to, no one even raised a question in her mind. She'd never heard a sermon on the subject, never read a book. I blame the Christian ministry entirely. It's a complete act of dereliction on the part of the Christian ministry. Christians can be forgiven for not having thought about this, for unwittingly assuming that such a practice would be all right, because their ministers have either been silent in regard to the issue, or in some cases have actually encouraged them to use cremation as a means of disposing of the human body. I have in my files an article by a minister of one of our conservative Presbyterian and Reformed denominations that argues that cremation is entirely proper as a practice for Christians. It's not much of an argument, by the way. Furthermore, it's obvious that the cremation of a Christian doesn't affect his or her future history. Obviously, many or blessing, obviously many Christians have been burned to death on martyr stakes or have died at sea or have decayed to nothing on a battlefield or a desert. God's able to raise the dead. That's not the issue. The issue is what is right for us to do. What practice is in keeping with our faith 
and the teaching of the word of God. And what way of treating our dead conforms to what we believe about them and their future? The arguments for cremation are, in fact, strikingly, eerily, like the arguments for abortion. They amount to a case of making it easier for the living. Burials are too expensive, too land-intensive in the same way that pregnancies can be so very inconvenient, can affect our working life, our careers, bring babies into the world that parents cannot afford, and so on. Well, then notice this analogy as well. Miscarriage is not abortion. What happens when a mother miscarries, as when a martyr is burned or a Christian sailor is lost at sea, is not at all the same thing morally as an abortion. The fact that babies die in the womb is no argument for killing them there. What happens to us is not the same thing as what we ourselves choose to do. The fact that God does not need an existing body in order to resurrect the dead is no argument that we should burn the bodies of our loved ones when they have died. The longer cremation is not spoken against, the longer the practice is tolerated in the Christian church, the harder it will be to repudiate it and to end it. Too many Christians will have cremated a loved one and will not want to admit that they have done something they should not have done or that they have mistreated the body of someone very dear to them or that they have done something wrong that they cannot undo. I've encountered this defensiveness already. So let me give you some reasons to think that these three burials at the end of the book of Joshua, are not mere historical detail, local color, but like the rest of the book, they are instruction in our faith. First, the practice of burial has the support of Holy Scripture from beginning to end, but cremation does not. This is very striking, and all the more because God's people throughout the history of, uh, or the history uh, covered in the Bible itself, God's people were rubbing shoulders with cultures that practiced cremation. But the patriarchs buried their dead. So did Israel. So did the church in the new epoch. Every statement regarding the dead in the Bible assumes this practice. Christ was buried and we were buried with him. We were not cremated with him. Jesus said those who are in their graves will rise to live. Statements that characterize death as sleep assume burial. They are simply incompatible with cremation, which is not in fact or appearance sleep, but complete and utter destruction and dissolution. Now you will hear people argue that in fact cremation does appear in the Bible and that therefore the practice has some biblical support. And cremation does occur in several instances. The first is that of Achan, whose sin at Jericho brought Israel to ruin at Ai, and who with his family was therefore stoned to death in the valley of Achor and their bodies burned. But surely there cremation is a sign of divine judgment and wrath. A similar instance of creation as a sign of damnation is found in Josiah's burning the bodies of the idolatrous priests on their own altars in 2 Kings 23. It's precisely this significance 
as an emblem of hellfire that makes it so inappropriate for God's people when they die and why it is not used otherwise in biblical history. The other instance sometimes cited is that of Saul, who, as we read in Kings, after being killed in battle, was taken by his enemies to Bethshan, where his body was hung up on the wall for his enemies to gloat. The men of Jabesh-Gilead, whom Saul had years before rescued from their enemies, went at risk to themselves, stole the body of Israel's king, or what was left of that body after some days of hanging in the Near Eastern sun, burned it, and then carried the bones home where they were buried. Cremation in that case was not a matter of disposing of a human body, but of necessity. What could be carried back for burial was carried back. Interestingly, the chronicler only mentions Saul's burial, not the burning, and some scholars have argued that the burning was not the burning of the body, but the burning of incense, a funeral rite. Eventually, as you remember, Saul's body was exhumed and that it was interred again in the family grave. If you interrogate Holy Scripture to learn how Christians ought to treat their dead, there is one answer given and one only. Their bodies are to be buried or entombed. This, we may say, is the exegetical argument for burial and against cremation. Second, the practice of burial attests to the biblical doctrine of man. And the greatest argument against cremation is the Holy Scripture's emphatic declaration of the personhood of the body. The reason we are against abortion is that the Bible teaches us that the fetus is a person. Not a person to be, not a potential person, but a person. Already a moral, spiritual being, already he or she has begun his journey or her journey from this world to the next. The, and you know how we know that, among other things? Because the baby in the womb is referred to in the Bible with personal pronouns. It is not an it. It is never an it. It is always a he or a she. The baby is a person already bearing the image of God. You can't kill other people. But the Bible, even more emphatically and more often, refers to the dead human body as a person. If it does that of the fetus, it does it more often of the dead human body. It is not what used to be a person. He or she is not what might again be a person. He is a person. She is, as she lies in the grave, a human being. What does the Bible say? They who are in their graves will come out. He rested with his fathers. We will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And other texts like those. When Joseph of Arimathea took the body of Jesus down from the cross, we read that he took him down. Not it down. He took him down. He laid him in the tomb. The personhood of the body is also the burden of those texts, a number of them, in which the dead are said to be sleeping. A striking and obviously significant metaphor used to describe death. People sleep. Ashes don't. And one who sleeps 
will someday wake up. That's the point of the metaphor. It is a powerful assertion of the personhood of the body and of the resurrection of the body. Personhood, in other words, attaches to the entirety of man, not just to his soul. The body is a person as well as the soul, and both are the objects of God's redeeming love. This biblical material proves that it's not too much to say that cremation is an attack on the identity of man in very much the same way that abortion is. In each case, the attack comes at the most vulnerable point on the continuum of life. In the case of abortion, on the person while still in the womb. In the case of cremation, on the person after death when the body lacking the soul no longer ceases to maintain the functions of life. We cannot see the living person in the womb or in the grave. And so we imagine that they're not persons at all. It's no surprise whatsoever that abortion and cremation should appear together in our Western world. They are the inevitable consequences of a loss of human identity in our culture. But Christians cannot share that loss of identity. And they should certainly never act as if they do. Again, people will argue that the body is going to disintegrate to the grave anyway. There's no, no preventing. It's returning to dust. What's the big deal if we help the disintegration along at the outset? But the body is not ours to destroy. It's never ours to destroy. In the womb, in the midst of worldly life, in the grave... Persons belong to God, not to us. God may destroy it by fire or in some other way, but we may not. Cremation is as different from the decay of the body in the grave as abortion is different from miscarriage. The personhood of the body, we may say, is the theological argument for burial and against cremation. Third, the practice of burial attests to the Christian hope of resurrection practice of cremation is an affront to that hope. The personhood of the body, its value and significance is confirmed by the Bible's doctrine that it is the self-same body that will be raised alive and transformed on the day of resurrection, as was the first resurrection in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ. You could see the nail prints still in his hands and his feet. This point is emphasized repeatedly in the Bible and in the creeds of the church and represents one of the cardinal distinctives of our faith as Christians among the religions and philosophies of mankind. Once again, this hope of resurrection for the self-same body that died is given expression in the Bible's habit of referring to the dead as sleeping. The point is often made, even in those cases where it would seem to us that nobody any longer exists to be raised to life again. At the last day, we read in Revelation 20, the sea shall give up its dead. What can be left of a person who died at sea 2,000 years ago? And yet this is what the scripture says, the sea shall give up its dead. They aren't going to appear from the land 
the self-same body. But contemporary Christians have lost touch with this great hope. Again and again, I hear believers speak as if our hope were the immortality of the soul rather than the resurrection of the body. When I worked for a mortuary during my seminary years, I noticed how often people would take comfort in this Gnosticism, this belittling of the dead body. That's not Uncle Henry, they they would say, as they stood beside the open casket. Uncle Henry is in heaven. Well, to be sure, if Uncle Henry was a faithful believer in Christ, his soul did go to heaven upon his death. But it is not Christianity to say that Uncle Henry is not lying in that casket. That body is and remains that person. Whether that person is a Christian or not. or not, And that self-same body will awake and appear alive in the world again on the day of resurrection. Or if you're a premillennialist, on the day of the second resurrection. It is one thing to destroy by fire what used to be Uncle Henry. It is another thing altogether to destroy Uncle Henry by fire. People who cremate the bodies of their loved ones do not think they are destroying their loved ones. But they are. Paul is careful to say, along with the rest of the Bible, that the life of the soul in heaven without the body is by no means the full measure of salvation that God has promised us and Christ has won for us. No, he said, in striking language there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Even in heaven, the soul groans, longing to be clothed with its immortal body. We don't put groaning and heaven together very often in our minds, but Paul does in that very important text. In the Bible, the believer's hope is not death. That is an interim blessing. But the resurrection of the body at the second coming of Jesus Christ. But the prospect of resurrection has no place. None in the view of death that permeates the practice of cremation. It's very important to realize that the religions that practice cremation as an article of faith, such as Hinduism, always do so in the service of a principle that elevates the spiritual, the soul, over the physical, the body. Salvation is conceived as the deliverance of the spiritual part of man from his physical part. That's exactly what Christianity does not do and will not do. Our bodies will rise again just as our Savior's did after He died on the cross for our sin. The salvation the Bible proclaims and Christ procured for us is the salvation of ourselves in their entirety, body and soul together, leading finally to the perfect and eternal transformation of our whole self. The same body, the same soul that began to live in the womb of our mother. This, we may say, is the eschatological argument for burial and against cremation. And fourth and finally, burial has the unqualified support of the entire history of Christianity in the world. Cremation has always been rejected as an unacceptable practice for Christians. The Christian church has never cremated her dead.
Did you know that? The unbelieving emperor, Julian the Apostate, Constantine's nephew, who sought to undo what his uncle had done in the recognition of Christianity and to restore paganism to its first place among the religions of the empire, thought that Christianity's triumph was due principally to three things. Christians' benevolence to the poor, their kindness, their honesty, and their treatment of the dead. In their funeral rites, in other words, they embodied before the world a new hope, a hope the rest of mankind did not have. Their practice was to wash the body, sometimes to embalm it, to wrap it in linen, and then in the presence of ministers, family, and friends to commit the body to the grave with prayer and singing. It was a powerful testimony to their reverence for life and their hope of the resurrection. They didn't fear cremation or other ways in which a body might be destroyed. It was the fate of the martyrs, after all. But they didn't make the mistake of supposing that the manner of disposing of a human body was therefore immaterial. Indeed, they did other things to embody their hope in the resurrection and their confidence that this same body would live again. They buried their dead with their heads to the west and their feet to the east, so that when Jesus came again in the east, a conclusion based on a remark in Matthew 24, they could stand up to face him and not have to turn around. Most cemeteries still today bury on the east-west axis, though I have discovered that a great many funeral directors no longer know why. What is more, they often buried the dead in their shoes, as an illustration of their expectation that these people would walk again on the earth and live again as human beings. Augustine wrote a beautiful little work on the care of the dead. It was written to answer a question from one Paulinus, the bishop of Nola in southern Italy, who wanted to know if Christians could gain an advantage for themselves by being buried next to a saint. Augustine answered, in effect, no, but he understood the sentiment and appreciated it, and then supported his answer with a typically cogent set of arguments from Holy Scripture. But then he took the occasion to speak to the larger question of Christian burial. The body is not simply an external or incidental covering for the soul, something that can be disposed of and forgotten. As the ring or garment of a loved one is treated with love and affection, so we should care for the bodies of our loved ones as though they are the persons. Bodies are not ornaments that are fitted from without. The body belongs to the very nature of man. Care for the bodies of our dead is an affirmation of our firm belief in the resurrection. Indeed, in reference to texts such as the one we read Today, here at the end of Joshua 24, Augustine observed it was because of the precious nature of the bodies of believers that the godly in ancient times provided funerals and graves for their beloved dead, such as Joseph and Joshua and Eleazar here. The Lord Jesus, if you remember, commended Mary for having anointed him with precious perfume because he said she was preparing him for burial. It would never have occurred to a pious Jew, that their dead would be cremated. And there's little point in anointing 
a body that's about to be incinerated. And why was it always burial, Augustine asks, as a sacred testimony to our confidence in the resurrection of the dead. Such a practice, you see, he said, is highly important for the living. He concluded, if unbelievers, those who have no hope of the resurrection, often take loving care of the bodies of their precious ones, how much more those whose Christian faith assures them that every human being, every human being will live again and every Christian body will rise to new and everlasting life. For thousands of years, this has been Christendom's universal custom. For what reasons now do we overturn this tradition, rooted as it so clearly is in the practices that are everywhere illustrated and commended and explained to us in the pages of the Word of God and expressing as that practice does so powerfully our hope of the resurrection. This, we may say, is the historical argument for burial and against cremation. Concerns about available land for cemeteries are misplaced. There is plenty of land, if only we thought it important, and many ways to make burial grounds go much further than they have in the past. My mother is buried on top of my father in the same grave. And while it's certainly responsible to think about how much money should be spent on a casket or on burial, let us make sure we're not in that concern masking a worldliness that quibbles about a few thousands for the burial of a human being made in the image of God, a human being who will live forever, but then does not hesitate to spend many, many more thousands of dollars on an automobile that we'll have for a few years and then trade away. These are not the real questions. Can we cremate our loved ones to the glory of God? Can we embody our Christian faith by cremating our loved ones? These are the real questions. G.K. Chesterton raised this latter point, the point Augustine raised concerning burial's witness to our faith in the nature and destiny of man, in the personhood of the body, and in man's intrinsic dignity in a series of debates on cremation versus burial that he conducted with George Bernard Shaw. The point he made with his characteristic wit was that the treatment of the dead cannot help but express our deepest beliefs concerning life and death. It is an act too fraught with significance concerning what human beings and, fellow, and human bodies are, what we do with them when they die. I say it's an act too fraught with, condition, with significance not to convey our convictions to our children, to our fellow Christians, to the bereaved, to the world as a whole. It certainly has for a long time in Christianity, as it does in other religions. Chesterton contended against Shaw that if one wanted to return to paganism, thinking it for some reason better to destroy the body by fire than to lay it in the grave to sleep, then at least one should do as the pagans do and make the destruction magnificent. He wrote a poem to this effect meant to point out the absurdity of turning the most sacred of acts into an empty, entirely unceremonial and unsymbolic act of mere utility or convenience. If I had been a heathen, 
I'd build my pyre on high and in a great red whirlwind go roaring to the sky. But Higgins is a heathen and a richer man than I. And they put him in an oven just as if he were a pie. (laughs) Israel embodied her faith in the promised land by burying her dead. The scripture teaches us to do the same. It is the Bible's way, the Christian way, to see the better country and welcome it from afar. When we cremate our dead, we are publicly renouncing. However unintentionally, however unwittingly, we are publicly renouncing one of the most important truths we are commanded to proclaim to the world. Everyone lives forever, body and soul. And for us Christians, this truth as well. God, my Redeemer, lives and often from the skies looks down and watches all my dust till he shall bid it rise. Amen. It is the first Lord's Day of the month and in keeping with our long-standing practice, practice that goes back to the earliest days of the church, in connection with the Lord's Supper, we take an offering for our deacon's fund, this fund of money with which we help those who are in need in the congregation and in the community. Give your gifts to God. After the choral anthem, we're going to sing hymn 291. I chose that hymn because it 
so beautifully expresses that main point. Our Savior did not go to heaven as a soul. He went to heaven in the integrity of his humanity, body and soul together. And he, we are told, was the first fruits of them who sleep. We'll all be in heaven in the integrity of our humanity, those of us who are in the Lord Jesus Christ by living faith. He is the first one there, but not the last. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this great salvation, and we thank you for the great Savior we have got in the Son of God. And we ask that by your gracious Spirit, you would bring him near and make us to know his presence so that we are conscious not only that he is serving us this food, but that we are feeding on him, the bread and the wine, his body and his blood, his love, his sacrifice, his triumph over sin and death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand. His coming again to bring us to heaven, to be with him forever. Renew our faith, our love, our gratitude, our commitment, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. It is in obedience to the Lord Jesus and in remembrance of him that we do this. For in the night in which our Savior was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after they had eaten, our Savior took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul adds that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again.
But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined for us wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Our final hymn is number 420, At the Lamb's High Feast We Sing, 420.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.